here they come now. You see them? Yeah. All I have in this world is my balls, my word. The African anteater ritual. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Who <laughs> should tell that girl? You don't have to take your clothes off. <laughs> Amanda Jones is no minor leaguer who will be swept off her feet at the touch of your amateur lips. Hold me, Mr. Butterfingers. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. I love you guys. Hey, hey, hey. It's the big master control program everybody's been talking about. I'm so sure. I'm not Spun Counter Guy, but thanks for stopping by. My name is actually Todd A. Zeller, and it's my privilege and honor to interview a dear friend of mine who goes by the moniker Spun Counter Guy. DJ, podcaster, musician, American history professor, historian, hillbilly extraordinaire, pro- <laughs> <laughs> programmer, corn-fed geek, husband and grandfather, and as of late, author of the John Hughes-esque new book, The Ten Tracks Mixtape Tasks. So, Spun, your story is set in the peak of the 1980s. Why do you think we are so nostalgic for that glorious time period? For me and you, you I don't remember when you graduated high school. I graduated in 1989. The most important part of my youth and growing up was during that time, you know, from high school all the way back to the ends of grade school. And it just seems like when you're at that age, everything seems more dynamic or more hopeful. Everything's exciting. And unless we were in a middle of a war or a you know genocide or something, I think almost anybody would look at that time in their lives, whatever decade it was in whatever country they were in and uh, see it as, you know, a magical time. But I think the 80s were definitely unique. I guess it was a perfect good storm, you might say. If and I don't mean to, you know, basically take you through my history class at the college, but you have to put it in context with the couple of decades before. Then you had, of course, the Vietnam War. You had all the assassinations. You had Watergate. You had a lot of civil unrest. The uh, benevolence of Martin Luther King was replaced by the Nation of Islam and the Black Panthers, who were, you know, advocating, you know, hey, let's go back to segregation. The death of a lot of hope. You know, he had the economic crisis. He had the hostages in Iran. Uh, he had President Carter. He seemed to lecture the American people like a angry preacher half the time. And it's not that what he was saying wasn't true. Uh, He just didn't seem to offer a lot of hope. And then, of course, you had the Soviet Union, which was expanding in spite of all the um, agreements that Nixon and Carter had tried to uh, make with them in China, also communist China. And so it just seemed like the world was becoming worse. Uh, And then in the 80s, all that turned around. And, And I think it reflected in the music and the movies. There was that sense of renewal, sense of optimism. You know, to be clear, I don't. I'm not saying that you know Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher were sitting down with Duran Duran and Hall and Oates and <laughs> Shalimar and, and Katrina and the Waves and say, "Hey guys, why don't you start writing more uh, upbeat music?" You know, and especially you, Katrina. Well, why don't you write a song about uh, you know su- sunshine? <laughs> how we can sit on sunshine? No, no better yet. How about we walk on it? Yeah. But I just think it was just the zeitgeist, and also as far as music, 
it just seemed like there was a lot of creativity and a lot of uh, pushing of boundaries that was encouraged. And that was a pop radio. It wasn't as much underground as it is now. You heard a lot of experimentation in the mainstream, which I think it's rare for a, a generation of you know popular art and popular music. I graduated in 1985. And so I feel like, you know, we have that very common ground, especially musically, of course, and culturally. But I think that's probably one of the things about our friendship that has blossomed because of all of our, you know, I can I can mention something like that to you and immediately you've got something in your hip pocket, you know, because you've either lived it, experienced it, taught it, read about it, listened to it. I mean, you, you know, interviewed it. The foundation of your story is based around small town life and the musical adventures of Estrella and TJ, kind of a dynamic duo siblings with a lot of compassion, heart and soul. Who are your brother and sister characters based on and why did you choose to have Estrella be adopted from another country? The character of TJ, the awkward nerd, uh, was definitely me. As far as Estrella, she was based on several people, or chiefly my two younger sisters who at various times in my life have looked out for me. And in fact, at least one of them to this day still looks out for me. You know, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed sometimes, but <laughs> and then I was thinking about this just yesterday when I was teaching in China, I had tutored some children individually and there was one in particular who was older beyond her years. And sometimes I had to depend on her because our tutoring sessions would include, you know, going to a tea house to study or maybe just walking around and, and talking. Because uh, my Mandarin wasn't so good, I had to depend on her. And she seemed to take a lot of pride in, you know, getting me out of jam sometimes and, uh, you know, looking out for me. So there was that. Uh, as far as Estrella being from Central America, Nicaragua specifically, there was a couple of reasons. One, I've taught a lot of English as a second language classes to immigrants. And for a while there, it seemed like most of the folks I was teaching were from Central America. And then I have an auntie from Guatemala, and a lot of their stories all matched up as far as that time in the 80s, as far as politically what was going on. And I thought it would be interesting to, to tell that story because, you know, as teenagers, we're probably not paying a whole lot of attention to what was going on in the world, but it was hard to escape it because it was in the music. Of course, it was in the news. Nicaragua itself almost brought President Reagan down with the Iran-Contra scandal. And so I thought it would be interesting to tell that story to maybe folks who didn't grow up in the 80s and didn't realize some of those tensions that were going on. And then I just know so many people that have adopted kids from other countries, and I've taught them as well. I realized when I was in China that sometimes listening to what other people said about your country, they seem to have a different insight, maybe a more fairer insight or a um, more holistic insight because they were looking from the outside. Sometimes I got that comment about my observations about China. When I was living there, Chinese nationals would say, you know more about my own country than I do. And I thought having Estrella tell the story, I think she would give a better again, holistic view of what was going on in Southern Indiana during those times. 
Your book was a real joy to read. I appreciated how you captured a more innocent time in life. Did you find it challenging to write from the perspective of a female protagonist? <laughs> I think I was basing it off of all the many female students I've had over the years as being a professor and then before that teacher and tutor. And they just they have a certain style and a certain optimism. Of course, they had their flaws too, and I tried to include that. It wasn't until like, I was done with the first draft that I realized, especially in the times we live in, that people are awful sensitive about an author of a certain race or gender, you know, writing a story about somebody from a different race or gender. But I was like, you know, forget that, because uh, I wouldn't care if a black woman wrote a story about a white guy, if she got it right. Sure. Sure. No, that makes sense. She told a good story. I don't care. And that's um, exactly what I was going to say was you, you nailed it. I was going to say at the end of the day. I really think it's about the story and you somehow captured it. I mean, it was beyond believable, you know, in terms of you got inside the, the heart, mind and soul of your younger sister. Kudos to you there. I think if I had told it from TJ's point of view, it would have been pretty boring, especially at least my brain at that time was so full of insecurities and confusion and waffling that it would have been a mess to have to hear a whole story from a person like that's point of view. I think because as you go through the story, I really feel like because TJ is this deeply introverted, shy, quiet, you know, slash nerdy, whatever you want to wear, whatever description you want to give him, it comes across that she is the spokesperson for this duo and all of their adventures and experience, you know, and so yeah. it makes total sense. Even though she's the younger sister, you know, it, it works really, really well. It's a very, very dynamic uh, presentation of, of the storyline, honestly. I really loved your humorous wordplay, names and nicknames, both the characters and the cliques, the dodge in and out of the plot line. Uh, such as the Stevie Ray Ron standout. <laughs> Love that. The, the punk rocker. I mean, that was a real click. It really uh, was. I wondered about that. Yeah, they weren't as prominent as like your, your metal heads or your gear heads or your, you know, your punks or whatever. But they existed. And it wasn't until later that I started to realize like, oh, that guy was a, uh, it was just a name I came up with, a Stevie Ray Ron. But they would wear that kind of Spanish bandero hat and, uh, you know. Oh, the, yeah. The, the leather boots with the tassels and just imitate the Stevie Ray Vaughan. He was, at least in the uh, guitar world in that time, he was such a prominent figure. I, I don't think he was prominent in the mainstream culture as, as he was among guitar players. I got the fine pleasure of watching him play about a year before he died and a bill with Jeff Beck and Terry Bozio on drums, oh, man. if I remember right. They were individual performances, but I think at the very end they came together for like a, a big encore. It was pretty cool. Well, I'm envious. I never got to see him. I did go through my Stevie Ray Ron slash Vaughn. Did you wait out? No, I, I never got quite that far into it, but I did go through a blues period where I, I really appreciate his playing. Still do. Uh -huh. uh, so another standout was the uh, the goth rocker Sicky, if I'm pronouncing uh -huh. that right. Uh, yeah. Just to name a few, you know, just you, you had some great names and I appreciated that. I also really love the various homages throughout the book. Uh, would you care to read a paragraph about the classic Exit Records band RV in the Shadows and their fantastic song Spanish Rebels? Well, I can tell you that was a late addition. A lot of the music and bands that are mentioned in the 
story. They're from my memories at that time. But Robert Vaughn, I didn't discover him really until a couple of years ago. Growing up in southern Indiana, we didn't have access to a lot of media that maybe folks in the bigger cities would have had. He didn't have a lot of underground radio or alternative radio or whatever you want to call it. When I got into his music a couple of years ago, and it was via, as you mentioned, Exit Records and a huge fan of the 77s who were on that label and a few others. When I actually got to interview Mike Rowe, the lead singer of the 77s, and he had some part in Robert Vaughn's story. And he mentioned the song Spanish Rebels, which I loved already, but I don't think I knew what it was about. And when he mentioned it was about the the Contras in Nicaragua, I thought, how perfect is that? Because Estrella talks about that a lot. Being her family was involved in some of that conflict. And so I I had to add it just for that reason alone. I was a fan of all the Exit Records uh, music as well. And I do remember that record. And when you described the, the album cover, it was perfect, you know? What makes that song even cooler is... Recently, there was a reissue of that album. It had been remastered and it had some extra stuff on it. And there was some interviews with Robert Vaughn. And he mentioned like they were just trying to make a straight ahead ear candy rock and roll song, not unlike ACDC. Uh, you know, I loved ACDC in spite of their junior high adolescent boy <laughs> lyrics. And then when you go to listen to that song and you think, OK, what if Brian Johnson was singing the song with his you know, screechy voice? Oh, yeah, this is an ACDC song. (laughs) There you go. There you go. That's perfect. There are quite a few emotional highs and lows, especially with TJ and Estrella. Uh, yet you handle them with such grace and compassion. Was it easy to place yourself back in these difficult moments of high school all these years later and write from a teenager's uh, point of view? I think my nervousness was a lot of these stories are real. They really happened. I was nervous about touching upon, especially the um, story about the dance where the guy had big plans for the girl he was going to take and he was basically going to have his way with her, regardless of what she had to say about it. That really happened. That was the hardest thing to write because I don't want to hurt people's feelings that are still around, and they may never read it. I don't know. In my mind, this was kind of my equivalent of a you know kind of a Ferris Bueller kind of story where it's it's fun and there's a little bit of heaviness to it, but you don't want to bring people down too much. And that was the one I almost left out. But I thought you know that was part of real life. That was even though. Most of us were having a great time in the 80s. Still, evil was afoot. Uh, So I felt like it needed to stay there. Well, it's a very powerful story. And that leads me to my next question. The book is rife with empathy for others, but always with a solid dose of humor. You know, you always took these really intense life situations that every teenager, young person goes through in high school and also in the dynamics of a brother-sister relationship and friends and so on. But you really also... I felt like it always was balanced out with some great humorous, you know, acknowledgments of of the situation. And in great detail, you really, really described it and put put the reader right there in the moment. Well, that's just the culture I grew up in. When you're growing up in it, you don't really realize it until you leave. I've been to other parts of the country and they just don't seem to have that. Maybe a coping mechanism. We seem to cope with a lot of bad luck or 
out and out tragedy with a sense of humor, at least in Boonville, Indiana, the town I grew up in, which is not quite all the way north and it's not quite all the way south. It's like this in-between area. And that's certainly a southern characteristic. People make jokes at funerals or make jokes about their own demise. Somebody I knew had gotten cancer and I emailed him about it and he made some joke and and, uh, (laughs) he was dead within six months, you know. And I I couldn't help but laugh when when I finally found out he was gone because he had made some joke about when he died, you know, something something was going to happen. And uh, (laughs) that's the way we deal with things, I suppose. Uh, I've been criticized for that, not with a book, but when I've worked in other parts of the country, everything from you people never take stuff seriously or what's that thing where if you joke about something, it'll happen. Oh, right, right. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Uh, even in China, that was a thing, too. They would do this thing where if you said something you didn't want to happen, you accidentally said something, you would say, pay, pay, pay. And it's like you're spitting that those words out of your mouth so they won't happen. But I'm still that person because that's just how I deal with things. It's it's either you laugh or cry. The mixtape itself plays a central role to the narrative. What was the process of choosing the songs and writing the various tasks to corresponding with them? All the songs that ended up being the 10, they're just songs that to me are some of the greatest of the 80s. And most of them are upbeat and optimistic. There's something otherworldly about most of them. And I wanted to keep most of them to be danceable because I had this mechanic where you had these three girls that are dancers and are trying to raise money for college. So all these songs had to be something they could dance to. So that was the choice there. And there was, I still have, a, you know, 10 or 20 other songs that could have been used that would, I think are just as great. As far as the task, again, almost every one of those tasks, actually, they were a way for me to tell stories that really, really happened. A lot of them happened to me. If they didn't, they happened to friends or, you know, someone that I knew. And I just tried to make it all happen to the same people to provide some grout or glue, so to speak. You jumped up 10 very clever mini adventures within the greater story, detailed with such originality and intrigue. Did you have a source of inspiration on those 10 tasks? Well, as far as that structure, yeah. I love the old epic stories, whether they're from the Bible or Arabian Nights or a lot of Chinese epic literature. There was a cartoon that I think might have come out in the 80s or thereabouts. I know I saw it in the 80s. It was a French cartoon called the, it was something like the 12 Tasks of Asterix. I think it was from the Roman times when the Romans were occupying France or Gaul or whatever it took place. But you have all that similar mechanic in a lot of those old stories where somebody has to perform so many missions before they get the gold or the girl or whatever. And so I thought that would kind of make it a little bit more timeless in the 80s there were so many uh, science fiction and fantasy movies and they always seem to have some kind of element in that do i understand you once owned a record store in nashville and i was curious do some of your characters stem from that experience no i no, i did own a record store that is true and i, I think about that every once in a while i think that's a book of its own but I haven't came up with a way to tell that story because there are plenty of stories there as well. I will say, though, that a lot of these stories that I told in the book, 
somebody pointed out that they remember me telling these stories when I was you know, the <laughs> owner of the record store. Like, you know, people were sitting around the counter and you know, right. tell us a story, Spun. You know, I would tell some early version of the true story uh, before they went into the books. I can't do this way much longer. The Joss in the book, The Ross in real life. Yeah, in Evansville, Indiana, it was a movie theater called The Ross, and they would have bands play there as well. I remember going to see one band that was playing. Their name was on the marquee, and also House Party was playing <laughs> in, the other, <laughs> in the other theater. Of course, people listening that were from that area will have to forgive me because I get some of my um, stories maybe stories and locales mixed up because there were some other venues like Stevenson Station was another place where a lot of these underground and punk bands mostly would play thrash bands. Probably the, the biggest name in that area at the time was Stop the Car. There was inverted nipples. I, I love the names of these bands. That, oh, my and, uh, my favorite probably was Cornucopia of Death. Uh, <laughs> they were like a thrash band that had a sense of humor. One of my favorite experiences about that, if you don't mind me going on about the Ross. No, please do. I went into the restroom during that show, and I'm at one urinal, and then somebody comes up in the next urinal, and I glance over, and it's a lady. And she's somehow peeing standing up. <laughs> and I'm stunned and a little horrified because here's a, a girl in the bathroom, and somehow she's able to stand up and pee. And I grew up with my mom and my sisters, and I never saw them do that. <laughs> and uh, but you know I'm still country, so you speak. You don't want to be impolite and say, you know, what's going on?" And and she was like, "I'm fine. How are you?" <laughs> <laughs> it was a dude. Come to find out. And looking back, I realize now it was probably the transvestite from Rocky Horror Picture Show because I remember that was sometimes going on in one of the other theaters while the bands were playing in you know another theater. And at the time, I had no idea what. Rocky Horror Picture Show was. I assumed it was a, a scary movie. <laughs> I guess it is scary. Yeah, not the way that you expect. That was just some of the experiences that, you know, I was so young and naive. It uh, just blew my mind. Cornucopia of Death, one thing I should note, that their drummer, or, or one of their drummers, went on to bigger things. He was in Five Finger Death Punch. Oh, yeah. My son was a big fan of that band. Jeremy Spencer. I knew him as Jeremy Heidi. He actually went to my high school. Another band I think is kind of funny. They were called uh, Freaks of Nature. <laughs> to explain this, I grew up in a town called Boonville, Indiana, which was stereotypically a, you know, like a redneck farmer, coal miner town. And one of the next towns over and our arch nemesis uh, was Newburgh, Indiana. And they were stereotypically like, uh, you know, kind of upper middle class suburbs type people. 
this band Freaks of Nature was from Newburgh, and somebody in Boonville basically renamed them to, um, well, the, the F word that's a very impolite thing to call a gay person of Newburgh. So Freaks of Nature became other F words of oh. Newburgh. <laughs> <laughs> and fast forward to early 2000s, I'm DJing at a Thai restaurant in Nashville, Tennessee. And I'm playing a song, and a guy comes up to me who's eating there, and he says, I was the engineer on this record. I was like, oh, cool. And he looks familiar, and I realized he was one of the freaks of nature, or F-words of Newburgh. And uh, his name was Mark Chevalier, and he was a sought-after engineer on a, a lot of records. I know he worked with Sixpence None the Richer, and he made it clear he wasn't a Christian, but he did on occasion work on some big Christian records. But... Yeah, he was all over the place, and uh, so I thought that was cool that uh, another uh, local guy made good. Did you work at Walmart? Yes, I did. In the book, Estrella has to get a job at Walmart, and almost everything that happens to her happened to me. Being the new stock boy, you had a period of hazing where there was a one particular department manager who basically made you her slave, and she was not very kind on top of that. So that's Estrella's first trouble in the book, and that was my trouble. And in real life, uh, the old lady who was the door greeter either quit or died or something, and nobody wanted to stand there all day. I raised my 15-year-old hand or however old I was and said, I'll do it anything to get out from under that lady. And so I went from being utterly miserable at Walmart to completely happy and, and looked forward to going to work because I just stood there in the front and talked all day to people. <laughs> there was a life lesson there. That's what I tried to include in the book. You know, your perspective on life and your amount of happiness or misery all depends where you're standing. Are you in the right station at life or are you doing what you're better suited to do? There was a real incident involving pickles in the lingerie section at Walmart and that was me where, I, in this case, I had moved a pallet of pickles out of the way. I was trying to get another pallet of stock out, and I just rolled it over into the lingerie section just for a minute. And when I was jacking it back up and trying to get it out, I, I didn't put the jack on it right, and so it kind of leaned over, and all those jars of pickles came tumbling down, and it got into the floor, the vinegar and the dill smell. I think to the day they finally abandoned that particular Walmart to build a new one, the women's bra and panty section smelled like, you know, vinegar and dill. <laughs> Did you hide on the shelves when you worked at Walmart when the lazy manager paged you? I did hide, but that story I borrowed from another friend of mine who worked at a Walmart, and they, they had a, a stock person that kept disappearing, and finally somebody found him asleep on top of a, a bunch of bags of Old Roy dog food. Uh, <laughs> Old Roy was the name of Sam Walton's dog, and so that's what the uh, generic version of our dog food was called. But yeah, I think he got fired over that. But uh, Walmart was so big, you could you know easily hide and everything. So. <laughs> So 
So there seemed to be a central Friday night location in the book. Um, Tasha's apartment, was that based in reality or an actual story there? Yes. Like in the book, I was playing basketball with a friend at one of the grade schools at night, and some guy showed up to play with us. Uh, Then he invited us to come back to somebody's apartment where they were having a get-together, just hanging out, and we went, and that's where I met Jackie was her name. She was great. She was kind of a mother hen. I mean, she wasn't that much older than us and was probably uh, still learning about life, but she did tend to look after some of us. I remember that. She gave me a little bit of, of advice here and there. And then I met all these people that some were older, some were not from Boonville. And so ever since the 90s, when I started to kind of look back and miss my teenage years, my mind kept going back to that apartment and wanted to do some kind of tribute towards it. So that's probably where the seed of the book started anyway. I don't want to give too much away in the various 10 tasks, but I do want to ask you specifically, I really enjoyed the, uh, I don't recall which task it was, but it's the one with the goth girl and working in the drive-thru and you really played up that whole task and adventure and getting to know her. I mean, was was she based in uh, on a real character? Yes, she was based on a couple of characters. I actually worked with her, a version of her, because it's not an identical, but a version of her at Hardee's. I, I did work at Hardee's. There was a girl at another drive-through that we sometimes would stick our heads out and listen to her because she was so entertaining when she talked to the cars <laughs> that came through the drive-through. And I don't even know if I ever met that person. I remember both the real girl and several other people I've met where they wanted to be part of this bigger thing. In this case, Mm -hmm. you know, punk rockers or straight edge. Mm -hmm. And they wanted it to be the thing that was perfect. You know, the parents weren't perfect. The church, you know, that's all full Mm -hmm. of basket cases. You know, the school, you know, all the different cliques. Mm -hmm. And they thought they had found their promised land in the, you know, the punk community, I guess you'd call Mm -hmm. them. But then they would discover that even in that subculture, there was a bunch of messed up humans, too. <laughs> they, may, they may be even worse, you know, than some of these other groups. And I went through that myself, just thinking like, okay, here's my people, you know, and then yep. uh, get burned. And, and then they let you so, down. Yep. Oh, yeah. It's kind of funny. You've let them down, too. And Yes. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It goes, goes both, both ways. ways. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Is there out of the 10, 10 tasks, you know, that are documented in the book? Is there a standout experience of those 10 that based in reality or otherwise that you prefer? Or? I think the when they go toilet paper in that farmhouse, yeah, that's a that good was one. pretty real. There's just a little bit of elaboration here and there. And it's incredible now when I look back, I wasn't the brains behind that. I was just one of the, the soldiers. <laughs> These guys that the cat bark town guys, as they're mm-hmm. called in the book, they had notebooks, they had maps. Uh, <laughs> they had actually uh, stolen the toilet paper over time from the school itself. Oh, I love uh, that. And we had 54 rolls of toilet paper. <laughs> and I think we just watched too many Chuck Norris movies. Other than leaving one guy behind accidentally, it went without a hitch. Never leave but, your man behind. <laughs> It was dark. We thought he was right behind us, you know. The real story was I think he had gotten into the garage, which the door was open and was toilet paper in the I think the car inside. <laughs> he just didn't hear us when we called out the alarm when the all the lights came on and we were discovered. Eventually we got him. We retrieved him. You know, I did some oddly enough, I did it with my youth group kids, you know, kids that I would hang out. <laughs> 
it was it, it was always like we would we would connive and and make a little plan and it was something like our youth leader or somebody you know who was in our church usually um but yeah we did a little bit of that it was fun it was good i mean not to the degree that i mean the intricacies of some of those plans and you know again you know i didn't grow up in in the farmland but it was relatable in the sense that you really nailed the intricacies and well well thought out plans of 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 young teenagers especially teenage boys my goodness it's just a You and I listen to a lot of the same bands, a lot of the same music, you know, Christian Alternative especially uh, influenced us in the 80s, 90s, you know, in our life as a whole. But I think at one point you do a little, little loose reference to the phrase drowning with land in sight. And I was just curious, is that a little homage or tip of the hat uh, to our, our band, the 77s? Absolutely, yeah. I love that phrase, and I don't think I understood it at the time because, again, I was not too bright back then. But uh, <laughs> as I've gotten older, I, I have had several drowning with land in sight moments. I really wanted to work in the 77s in the book somehow because at one point I thought, well, this is probably going to be the only book that I'll ever publish. And they were such an important band to me, uh, more late 80s, early 90s. But I didn't want to shoehorn it in, and it just happened that Estrella and TJ were in a particular situation that seemed like a drowning with land in sight moment. So I thought, okay, there you go. I'll, I'll throw that in. And I'm glad you picked that up because I'd forgotten I had put that in there. I'm always a fan of uh, little cameo moments, honestly. Yeah. I, I, I love that, whether it's in film or music or uh, literature, honestly. It's just, I, I think it's a great tip of the hat because we've always got our forefathers who came before us one way or the other to uh yeah. to thank you know for some moment or some some phraseology i love it so spun back to the book itself the physical copy you know i really I'm drawn to the the cover. It stands out. It's you know I, I would set it on a bookshelf in any Barnes and Noble, you know, right up against any of the popular books of the day. But um, do I understand you self-published this? Do you want to comment on that? <laughs> yeah, self-publishing in some ways is easier than it's ever been, uh, in that you don't have to order like 500 copies or a thousand copies and then just have them sitting in your closet for the rest of your life. And that's expensive, of course, but now they have this um, print-on-demand. And so that relieves things financially, but you still have to do everything yourself. And it's just, you don't even know where to start. And I've had a lot of ups and downs with that. I, again, I lucked out by having good artwork, which, you know, great books can suffer if the cover is not that great, it's not appealing. So I got that going for me. I'd had it proofread once. I thought, okay, we're good. And so I, you know, uploaded it and uh, you know, we sold the first batch and then one of my OCD friends, Brother McWilliams, <laughs> hey, did you know there's some mistakes in this book? I'm like, oh, no, because I you know, paid to have it proofread. I was embarrassed. So my OCD friend, he went back through it and you know, found some the mistakes and I fixed them. And I think now it's OK. 
I'm sure there's probably something in there, but that was disheartening. But, you know, had I had a publisher, I have learned since that they apparently have it proofread multiple times by multiple people. Uh, and you have an editor who tries to help you with consistency and, and uh, you know, word things better. And I, I haven't had that at all. But so if people find little glitches in the book, well, you can email me because then I can fix it easily. And the, the next person who buys it won't have that glitch. And then trying to get people to notice it. We have social media, which we didn't have 20, 30 years ago. So that's great. But trying to get noticed when everybody else is trying to get noticed is difficult as well. And maybe even people who are published have this problem. I know two people that have been published by major publishers and they sometimes don't even know if their book will get reviewed because even though they may have relationships with magazines and journals, they're inundated with books. They just can't get to all of it. So Spun, favorite DJing gig ever? It was Halloween night, probably the early 2000s. And I was sleeping in the storage room of my record store. Things were going so well financially. <laughs> and I get a call from a, a DJ promoter. And he was like, hey, Spun, what are you doing right now? I said, nothing. What's up? <laughs> and it was about one o'clock in the morning, I think. He said, I need you to help me out. I got a problem. He said, can you come to this big venue in Nashville? I think it was called City Hall. Uh, he said, yeah, br bring your music, the stuff that you usually play. And I said, okay. So, you know, I got my stuff together and went over there. It was probably a few thousand people. And wow. maybe it's exaggerated in my mind, but it was this big Halloween party. The DJ that they had, I actually knew the guy. He was a nice guy, but he was under the impression it was supposed to be like a like speed metal or hard rock. And mm -hmm. so that's all he had in his record crate. They basically brought me on stage and told the guy he was being fired in the same <laughs> moment. And I felt like such a heel. And I told the guys, man, I'm sorry. I didn't know what I was getting into. He's like, no, man, I, I, I need to get out of this place. You know, it's, it's not going well. And the people were upset. And <laughs> I remember like the, the very first song I put on was like a Faith Evans song that sampled a chic song. The crowd just went wild. You know, because it wasn't speed metal. From then on out, I just played my instinct. I played all these songs that just, you know, everybody loves. Or if they haven't heard it, they will love it within a few seconds. And sometimes you get distracted by people that are so adamant about playing their song. And a lot of times people mm. don't realize that their song may bring everybody down or it messes up the moment. I remember at a wedding, somebody wanted to hear a Nine Inch Nails song. I'm like, <laughs> dude, it's like the bride's grandma's here, you know? Oh my. And, uh, but anyway, there was this guy dressed like Abe Lincoln and he kept trying to get my attention. And I was like, no, I'm not listening to him. I'm playing what I think is right. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't leave me alone. And finally they had some bouncers that were up on the stage to keep people off. And I asked one of those guys, I said, hey, can you go find out what Abe Lincoln wants? And so he went over there. <laughs> And the guy comes back and he says, he wants to hear Thriller by Michael Jackson. I'm like, of course, it's Halloween night. You know, I'm, I'm still asleep. So I made that the last song I play. And of course, oh. people go nuts and everybody's doing the dance from the video.
afterwards, I, I caught Abe Lincoln. I said, hey, thanks for that request, and thanks for freeing the slaves, too, while you're at it. <laughs> that was my greatest DJ moment. It was total happenstance. Everybody left that place never knowing what my name was, but you know that's okay. My goodness. Yeah. Love it. All right. Favorite record shop in the 1980s. Can you think of a, you know, a local record shop that you enjoyed going to? Yeah, I don't remember the name of it. I feel bad. There was some kind of chain that was in the Isla Mall in Evansville. It wasn't Camelot, but it was something like that, like coconuts or But what was specific about it. And I actually mentioned her briefly in the book, but there was a girl named Monica who was the manager there. And she might have been a couple years older than me, but she was a great little alternative girl, very cute, very bubbly, and was just trying to help people find new good music. How about your favorite 80s film, if you could only choose one? Some kind of wonderful. A lot of stories I've tried to set in the 80s when I've experimented with this, I've had to really try hard not to repeat that story because it's so good. And I, sometimes I don't realize how much it's affected me. I know everybody loves 16 Candles. It has its moments in Breakfast Club. But to me, John Hughes's best writing, his masterpiece is some kind of wonderful. Nobody can stand being alone. The minute you stop thinking there's someone out there for you, it's over, isn't it? Now I'm going to have to watch that one with my, my 23-year-old daughter. She loves uh, Breakfast Club. She loves 16 Candles. She's a big fan, but she's not seen some kind of wonderful. And I, I remember that one well. So we did have a little contest. Uh, we uh, asked uh, folks to send in some questions to me to ask Spun here on the podcast. And uh, sure enough, we've chosen some winners. Spun, you want to take it from here? Yeah, we uh, rolled the proverbial uh, polyhedron, 20-sided die. The, the first winner is Libby Stewart. And by the way, all these winners will receive either a t-shirt or a hoodie with the book cover, which you can get on Etsy, by the way, if you do a search for 10 tracks mixtape tasks. And uh, I do want to say something about all three of these folks. Libby, she grew up about a mile from me outside of Boonville. I was friends of her brother, and I remember one time he told me, uh, yeah, Libby got a job at a graveyard. <laughs> and I was like, well, I want to work at a graveyard because whatever job I had, it wasn't that. So I always admired that about her, that she had that job at the graveyard. A, a graveyard, which, by the way, now at least two of my grandparents are buried at. Wow. There's a lot of, a lot of stories in that graveyard besides the people buried there. And in fact, one uh, thing that we used to do in Boonville was throw feed corn at cars at night like when they were passing by to scare them. <laughs> and, and people would chase us. And one of our favorite places was that graveyard because there were some trees and bushes. And, and of course, uh, running through a graveyard is quite the um, obstacle course, let me tell you. But one other thing about Libby, me and her and a couple of other friends went to the Ross together to see a, a Christian band. Uh, they were local, but they had, I guess, a national deal that they were called Soraya. The one thing I remember from that gig was we were waiting in line outside the Ross, and I guess the punks uh, who you know came every Friday and Saturday night to see bands play were really upset. 
that there was this Christian metal band there and it was like an invasion of their home. They were yelling at us like in the line and I think there was a few people that maybe went to the punk shows but also was going to go to this metal show, myself included, and they were like, you know, don't don't go in there. It's a Christian metal band. They're Christians. And I just will never forget that. I thought, man, this is like <laughs> something out of a, a bad Christian movie, you know, uh, the atheist or non-believer who can't stand the sight of a, a cross or something. Yeah, so thank you, Libby. The next one is a Derek Luptak. Derek, I've never met the man physically, but he's been a supporter of other creative projects I've had over the years. My favorite fact about him is that I found out not long ago that he was a youth pastor for a while. And I often think about how my life might have been different had I had him as a youth pastor because uh, he's a pretty deep thinker. And my youth pastors, are we, we called them team leaders back then. They were good folks and they had a lot of fun with us, but I remember wanting to ask some heavy questions and that just wasn't their training. Derek posts a lot of things and just I admire him as a thinker and he's a poet also and uh, that's Mr. Looptack. And the last winner is Kat O'Connor. Also, I have never met her, but I'm a big fan of a podcast that she's one of the hosts on. It's called 1980s Now. If you ever are just feeling nostalgic for the 80s. It's really a great way to relive that decade. They have like trivia, they talk about certain events, they're funny also, and sometimes they have guests on from that time period, like some of the ones that stick out in my head, like they had the girls from Expose, which was this uh, Miami-based Florida Breaks, no, freestyle dance music, which I was really into. Michael Sweet from Striper was on there once. Uh, they talked about the satanic panic, which I, I remember now. I kind of forgot about it, but yeah, that was a big oh, yeah. deal. It's really a good place to go revisit that time. So, And Kat, is, she's the sweet one on the, the podcast. Um, so I, I was honored that she would send a few questions since I uh, am a listener. Thank you, everybody, for your contributions on the questions. And uh, again, please go buy this book. It's well worth the few dollars that it takes to enjoy a large chunk of sweet nostalgia. It's at barnesandnoble.com or amazonbookshop.org. Or if you just do a search in a search engine, it should come up somewhere. Fantastic. Hopefully, we'll me and you will end up in the same nursing home when we get older. <laughs> so we can still have these moments and talk about the good old days. I'm certainly depending on it. <laughs> <laughs> hey! All right. <laughs> So pretty soon they're going to be telling that joke. You know what Todd and Tim smell like? <laughs> well, it depends. Jeez. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Counter Guy here. Thanks for listening. And if you check in in about a week or two, we'll have up the second part of this conversation between myself and Mr. Todd Zeller. In the meantime, if you're thinking, hmm, I'd like to get some more of that Zeller, you might check out a previous podcast we did together on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 262, where he talks about his film and video work. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us 
at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week.